So as I was thinking about our time together this morning, uh, confession, I just had a birthday a couple weeks ago. Uh, so I'm now uh, years old and uh, under 50, under 50. Uh, but uh, it dawned on me that uh, I really am kind of a 90s kid. Like a 1990s dude. I don't know if any of you can relate to this at all or not, but I was in high school and, and college in the early 90s. And uh, I just, I am a 90s guy. Like I, I love 90s television shows and 90s music and 90s movies and all that. So if you can remember any of that, there was, it, back in the early 90s, there was kind of a, this new phenomenon that popped up on cable TV that was called court tv does anybody remember court tv yeah so where they would kind of broadcast these trials you know live from the courtroom and dan abrams was on there you know and you you could kind of watch and, and of course what sort of jump-started the whole uh court tv phenomenon was uh the oj simpson trial which happened right at the early 90s there and people just spent hours you know watching the live trial from the courtroom and all that and the reason I bring that up this morning is uh, I want to invite us to look together for just a couple of minutes this morning at a passage of scripture that's from one of the books of the Old Testament prophets. So you can get back to 1 Peter and the New Testament next week. You know there's an Old Testament, Brett. You know that, right? Okay, I'm just saying. No, I'm kidding. This is something I always talk about with his dad, who I can't tell you how much I love his dad and what he's done for me uh, in my life. It's so great. But this passage is from one of the books of the Old Testament prophets. And it's a passage that is almost like stepping into the middle of a courtroom where there's like this trial going on and particularly where God is sort of prosecuting a case against God's own people but with a pretty surprising twist that happens right at the end of the trial. So if you have a Bible this morning or your phone uh, and you want to go with me, uh, we're going to go to the little Old Testament book of Micah this morning. And we're going to go to Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. And by the way, it's okay to use the table of contents to find the book of Micah. That thing's hidden in there a little bit. But Micah chapter 6 this morning. And in just a second, when we begin to read in Micah 6, we're going to be listening in for a moment to the words of this ancient Judean prophet of long ago. And Micah was a prophet who was preaching to kind of the southern kingdom of Judah in the 8th century, so the mid-700s BC. Uh, and a lot of things were going on. But in this particular passage, Micah, sort of speaking on behalf of God, is presenting like this trial, this sort of court case where God is prosecuting this case against God's own people. And specifically what we're going to see is that God is, is making the claim that God has lived up to God's end of the relationship. God's obligations with God's people. But God's people have not lived up to their end of the relationship and their obligations. But again, with a pretty surprising twist 
that happens right at the end of the trial. So look with me at how it gets going here, just in verse one of, of Micah 6. It all sort of begins with Micah, the prophet, speaking first and kind of speaking to God, sort of calling upon God to come forward and sort of present God's case, right? Begin the, the court session. So look with me at how it starts off. The prophet says this. It says, hear what the Lord says. Rise, Plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. So Micah kind of starts off sort of calling upon God to come and sort of take the stand, if you will, right? Sort of come and, and present God's case uh, before the people and about the people. And then it goes on in verse 2. Micah sort of turns his attention to address the people and sort of call the court into session, if you will. So look at verse 2. Micah goes on to say this. Hear you mountains, the controversy of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will contend with Israel. Okay, can you hear it a little bit? So Micah begins by sort of calling upon God to come and take the stand and then sort of calling the court into session. And did you notice one of the first things he does is sort of call upon witnesses, to sort of hear the case that God's going to present. Did you notice who the witnesses are? Calls upon the mountains of the earth. And, and the foundations of the earth. These entities that have, have been there from sort of time immemorial. They've seen generations after generations come and go. They're going to be the witnesses to the case that God's going to present. And then did you notice that line? Micah says, for the Lord has a controversy with his people. A, a great little Hebrew word for the word controversy there is this, this uh, Hebrew word reeb. The Lord has a reeb with his people. And literally the word reeb means something like uh, an accusation, a, a charge. The Lord has a case against God's own people. And so with the stage set and the court sort of called to order, Beginning in the next verse, verse 3, God sort of takes over talking. And starting in verse 3, God sort of begins to present God's case in this courtroom with God's people. Look at it with me, what we begin to see there. Starting in verse 3, God says this. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? In what have I wearied you? Answer me. I mean, can you see right out of the gate that God is sort of like talking and saying, oh, my people, tell me how I've wronged you. Tell me in what way I haven't done right by you. Tell me how I've wearied you. You, you almost get, the, the statement almost implies that, that God's people have sort of decided that God hasn't done right by them. That, that in some way being in this relationship with God is sort of like a, a burden. Like it's, it's wearisome in some way. And so God starts off by saying, oh my people, tell me how I've burdened you. Tell me how I've been wearisome to you. Tell me how I've not done right by you. And what I love about this is beginning in the next verse, verse 4, God sort of begins to present God's evidence. God says, hey, let's talk about how I have actually treated you. 
Let, let's talk about what I have actually done in this relationship. And starting in verse, uh, verse 4, God just sort of starts going through some examples of God's evidence for how God has treated God's people. Look at it with me. So in verse 4, the first piece of God's evidence, he says this. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery and sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Do you recognize that story? That's the story of the exodus from Egypt. You can find it in your Bibles in the Old Testament book of Exodus, about chapter 14 and following. Uh, And God says, hey, don't you remember what I've actually done for you? Do you remember generations ago when your ancestors were slaves in the land of Egypt? I came in and I rescued them. I liberated them from oppression, from bondage, from discrimination. I brought them out and I gave them leaders to lead them into a new day. I gave them Moses and Aaron and Miriam. By the way, I love that the prophet puts Miriam in there. Women were important leaders of the people of God in the Old Testament. And here's the prophet saying, God saying, hey, I didn't just give you Moses and Aaron. I gave you Miriam, Moses' sister. I provided a way into a new life for you. That's what I've actually done for you God says and then God goes on in the in the rest of that verse to mention a second thing actually in verse 5 God says let me give you another piece of evidence in verse 5 we get this God says oh my people remember now what King Balak of Moab devised and what Balaam son of Beor answered him now unless you've been digging pretty deep in your Bible study or Sunday school or whatever, you might not know that story. But this story you can find in your Bibles in the book of Numbers, particularly Numbers chapters 22 to 24. And if you remember what happens when the Israelites come out of Egypt, they begin to journey through the wilderness, heading to the promised land of Canaan. And if you remember any of those stories, as they're journeying through the wilderness, they keep coming into the lands of these kings, these sort of kings who want to be all powerful and autocratic and all that, who keep trying to destroy Israel in the wilderness. And in one of those stories in the book of Numbers the Israelites come into the land of this king named Balak of Moab and in the story Balak goes out and hires a prophet a non-Israelite prophet named Balaam to come in and curse the Israelites so that they will die in the wilderness and if you remember at all in the story what happens is God intervened God comes in and sort of gets a hold of the situation. Balaam has a donkey who you remember ends up talking in the story. It's sort of weird. Uh, but, But God comes in and sort of grabs that thing and turns it around. And in the story, this non Israelite prophet Balaam actually, instead of cursing Israel, ends up blessing Israel for their life in the wilderness. God says, That's the kind of thing I've done for you. And then there's one more piece right there in verse 5 where God says, here's a third piece of evidence. God says, remember what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. That's a story you can find in the book of Joshua, particularly Joshua chapter 3. And Shittim was the last place the Israelites camped in the wilderness. And Gilgal was the first place they camped in the promised land of Canaan. So God says, remember how I brought you out of the wilderness and brought you into the promised land. Remember how I brought you across the Jordan River with this miraculous parting and and I brought you in to this this land that I'm going to give you for your own. Can you see what God's doing here? God's sort of laying out the evidence. 
here's how I've actually treated you. Here's what I've actually done for you. In other words, this is God sort of saying, this has been my end of the relationship. I've upheld my obligations in this relationship that we have with one another. And in fact, I love the kind of climactic statement of God's speech at the very end of verse 5. This is sort of the dramatic conclusion where God sort of rests God's case, right? At the very end of verse 5, God says, remember these things. Why? So that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. The saving acts acts of the Lord. Another great little Hebrew word there for saving acts is this word sidkoth. Sidkoth. And literally sidkoth means righteous deeds. Righteous deeds. And I love that because this is God's way of saying remember these things so that you can know the, the righteous deeds of the Lord. And I like it because in the Old Testament this, this word righteousness means right relationship remember these things so that you can know the the right relationship deeds of the lord the the rightly related acts of the lord in other words this is god kind of resting god's case by saying look at the evidence this is how i've actually treated you i've done right by you in this relationship. I've done rightly related actions to you in this relationship. I've, I've held up my end of the relationship and my obligations. Remember these things so that you can know the right relatedness deeds of the Lord. And with that, God sort of rests God's case. Now, if you're like me and you've got a little bit of an active imagination, it's right about this moment in this passage where I can just sort of envision as God sort of hits this dramatic conclusion and sort of rests God's case and sits down. I can imagine just sort of this stunned silence just sort of falling over the people. Just this kind of hush just falling over the courtroom in light of this powerful case and evidence. Almost the sense of just how, how in the what in the world can we say now? And what I love about this passage is beginning in the next verse, verse 6. It's almost like in the midst of all of that just kind of stunned silence and hushness. One little voice from somebody in the crowd finally dares to sort of timidly hesitantly say something and the prophet doesn't tell us who it is or anything I can just imagine sort of somebody somewhere in the back of the courtroom you know that you can't quite see finally hesitantly timidly breaks the silence and look at what they say in verse 6 the voice says this with what then shall I come before the Lord and bow myself down before God on high. Oh, can you hear it? I mean, it's almost like this one voice in the, in the face of this overwhelming case put on by God. It's almost like this voice just finally raises the question and says, what do we do then? How can we then come before this God? In other words, this voice is saying, 
what's our end of the relationship? What's our obligation in this life-giving relationship that God has established? And what I find so interesting here is that beginning in verse 6, this voice just kind of begins to go through some options. What are our obligations? What's our end of the relationship? How do we come before this God who, is, who has been so right to us? What do we do? And, and look at what they go through. They sort of begin to go through some of their religious practices. So look at it with me in the rest of verse 6 there. The voice says, shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Verse 7, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Or shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Can you see what's happening here? I mean, this little voice is beginning to say, what's our obligation? What's our end of the relationship? How do we come before God? And they start going through their religious practices. But, but, but did you notice, there's sort of an escalation as they go along, right? Each one gets, gets a little bit stronger and a little bit weirder. So they say, maybe I need to come before God with a burnt offering. Maybe I need thousands of rams for thousands of burnt up. Maybe I need... 10,000 rivers of oil for an offering. And then the climactic one, maybe my own firstborn child. Maybe I need to sacrifice my own child to be able to come before this God. So, I mean, here's this sort of, I see some parents out there going, that's you, honey, that's you. It's okay. Uh, There's this escalation where these are like their religious practices, but on steroids, right? Uh, And I mean, if we were going to translate this into our day, we might find ourselves saying something like, you know, what's our obligation? What's our end of the relationship? How do we come before God? Do, Do we need to just do more religious practices, like we just need to do more religious stuff. Like I, I just, do I just need to come, I need to come to church more. Right? I, I need to give more money, not online, not online. I got it, not online. But I need to give more money or we just need to do more religious stuff, right? Is that, is that our obligation? Is that our end of the relationship? And it's kind of at this moment in the court case that we get verse eight. And in verse 8, one more time, the prophet Micah kind of takes back over speaking. And in verse 8, Micah gives the verdict. But it's kind of a surprise twist right at the end of the trial. Because look at what we hear finally from the prophet in verse 8. We're saying, what's our end of the relationship? What's our obligation in this relationship that God has established? Micah ends by saying this. Look at verse 8 with me. Micah says, He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Except to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That's the verdict. He says, do justice, Love kindness. Walk humbly with your God. Micah says that's our end of the relationship. Do you see the surprise twist in it? Surprisingly when you get to the end of this trial. 
it turns out that our end of the relationship, like our obligation in this relationship with God, surprisingly, is not something that we do to God. It's something that we do to others and thereby we do it unto God. Micah says, this is our end of the relationship. This is our obligation in this life-giving relationship God has established. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. Can we talk about these words for a second? Do justice. All right. Let me tell you that you want to learn some. They can learn some Hebrew in here today, right? You can do that free of no tuition charge. No tuition. We'll learn. So the 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 Hebrew word for justice here is the word mishpat. Mishpat. You want to try to say it? Go ahead. Mishpat. Mishpat. Yeah, it's not bad, right? Uh, mishpat. And justice is one of those words that I think we we throw around a lot without ever really talking about what we mean by it. But here in the Old Testament prophets, justice, mishpat, means to provide well-being for those who are the most vulnerable among you. That's mishpat. That's justice. Provide well-being for those who are the most vulnerable among you. The ones who are so often left out, locked out, don't have access. To provide for their well-being is to do justice, to do mishpat. And then there's that second word, to love kindness. Oh, the Hebrew word for kindness is this great little word, chesed. Chesed. Isn't that great? You want to try to say it? Go ahead. Chesed. Yeah. If the person in front of you doesn't get a little wet, you're not doing it right. It's chesed. That's not bad. And chesed's a great word because it gets translated in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's kindness. Sometimes translated as mercy. Sometimes as loving kindness. Right? But, but here's what I love about it. In the prophets, watch this now. In the prophets, the word chesed means an act of unobligated kindness. Unobligated kindness. In other words, chesed is an act of kindness you do when you are under no obligation to do it. There's nothing that sort of requires you to do that act of kindness. There's nothing that forces you to do it. That's chesed. It's an act of unobligated kindness. And then there's that third one. Walk humbly with your God. All right, so the word for humbly is the Hebrew word tzane. Right, you want to try it? Go ahead. Tzane. Yeah, you got to get the T-S in it. Tzane. Yeah, that's good. Tzane. So you can really impress somebody at lunch today. This is going to be good. Tzane. But what I love about the word tzane is in Hebrew, the word tzane means both wise and humble together. Like at the same time. It means like wisely humble. Like humbly wise. Right? It's the same word. And you can see how they go together, right? To, to be humble is to be wise. And to be wise, if you're doing it right, is to be humble. Right? It says you walk in a, a sort of a wise humility in your life before God and with others. So you see, here's the verdict the prophet gives. What's our end of the relationship. 
What's our obligation in this life-giving relationship that God has established with us? Surprisingly, it's not something we do to God. It's something we do to others and thereby do it unto God. And what is it? Do justice, unobligated kindness, and a wise humility in our life before God and with others. That's our end of the relationship. That's our obligation in this relationship that God has established. So as I was thinking about this today, I was trying to think of like, what's a good sort of closing illustration about this to sort of say, like, what does this actually look like in our lives? Like, if you think about it, you know, practically, concretely, what does it look like to, to do justice and to do unobligated kindness and to walk humbly in a, in a sort of a, a wise humility in your life before God? What's that actually look like? And so I was thinking about this and much to my chagrin, Pastor Brett, my mind was drawn to the New Testament. I'm just kidding. That's just, I'm just a you know, professor of Old Testament. We have to stand up for the Old Testament as much as possible. But my mind really was drawn to the teachings of Jesus and particularly to a parable of Jesus that is probably one of the most famous of all of Jesus' parables. And this is the parable that we now call the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I mean, if you've been around the church long at all, you've probably heard this one before. Uh, you can actually find it in the Gospel of Luke. It's actually in Luke chapter 10 is where it appears. And it, just to remind you, in Luke chapter 10, beginning down about verse 25, you'll remember that Jesus is going around and, and teaching and doing his thing. And this, this, the story says that uh, a lawyer comes up to Jesus to question him. So here we are with this courtroom trial stuff again. Uh, but in this context, lawyer here in Luke 10 probably doesn't refer to a lawyer like you and I think about it today. The reference here is probably to a person who is an expert in the Jewish law. That is uh, the Torah, is the, the, the Hebrew scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament. That's probably who this person is, an expert in the Torah. In the Jewish law. But this person comes up to Jesus. And you might remember the story. Comes to Jesus and says. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Right? In other words the person asks. What's my obligation? Right? What's my end to receive this life that God is giving? And what I absolutely love about this. I don't know if we've got any other teachers in here right now. But what I love about this. Is that Jesus answers this person. In, a, in exactly the way any good teacher should answer. Now remember, Jesus knows this person is an expert in the Jewish law. They know the scriptures, right? So the, the guy says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks back at him and says, what did it say in the reading? Right? Did you do the assigned reading? What did it say? Right? That's what he said. And, and, and the guy, because he knows he knows the scriptures, right? And you remember, the guy says, the scriptures say, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor like you love yourself. Those are the obligations. And Jesus says, that's right. Have a nice day. Right? But he's not making up anything new. This isn't novel. Jesus didn't create this. He's just quoting from the Old Testament. He quotes from Deuteronomy and then Leviticus. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. End of the conversation. Right? Except not. Because you remember in the story, the next thing the story says is that this man 
wanted to justify himself. In other words, this guy wants to get off on a technicality. So he asks a follow-up question. And what he says to Jesus is, yeah, but Jesus, who is my neighbor? See, he wants to get off on a technicality, right? He knows the obligation is love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. But he says to Jesus, yeah, but Jesus, who really is my neighbor? Like, in other words, who actually counts as my neighbor, right? Who actually has the status of being neighbor such that, you know, I have to love them like I love myself, but then these other people I don't have to worry about, right? See, that's who actually is my neighbor? And it's in response to that question right there that Jesus tells the parable that we now call the parable of the Good Samaritan. And you might remember how the parable goes as a guy's going down a road, he gets jumped, by robbers and they rob him and they beat him up and they leave him basically dying on the side of the road he's practically dead he just hasn't died completely yet right he's dying on the side of the road and in the story you remember first a priest comes by and doesn't stop to help and then a levite comes by who's basically another kind of priest and doesn't stop to help so in other words the religious folk the religious leaders come by and don't stop to help because they're too busy being religious. That's a topic for another day. Have me back. We'll talk about that. And then you remember in Jesus' story what happens? A Samaritan comes by. And you probably remember the background here. At the time, there was significant division and hostility between the Jews who lived around Jerusalem and those who lived up in the north around Samaria and this was a division that was an ethnic division political division uh, religious division I mean the Samaritans to the audience here were those who are you know those people that we don't like they're different than us ethnically religiously politically ideologically and they're not supposed to be the hero of the story and Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero and you remember in the story the Samaritan who has no connection with any of this comes by and uh, helps the man on the side of the road heals his wounds takes him to town pays for him to have a place to stay and then when you get to the very end of the story Jesus looks back at the expert in the Jewish law and says to him which of these three men do you think was a neighbor to the man dying on the side of the road and of course the answer is the Samaritan But what I love about this story, what I love about it, y'all, is at the very beginning of the story, back in verse 29, I guess, when the man says, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Really interesting verb there in Greek. We've switched to Greek now for the New Testament, right? And so the, the verb for is there is this Greek, it's a form of the Greek verb, ami. And what he says is, like, who is my neighbor? Who me my neighbor? Like, in other words, who qualifies as neighbor, right? Who really has the, the status of being neighbor such that I have to love them like I love myself? Who is my neighbor, me? But when you get to the end of the story, down in verse 36, when Jesus looks back at the man and says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor? In that sentence, Jesus doesn't use the same verb. Doesn't use the verb me" from earlier. Instead, when Jesus says, which of these was a neighbor? Jesus uses this, a form of this other Greek verb, ginomai. And the verb ginomai means something like to become. 
to become. Can you see it? The man starts off by saying, yeah, but who is my neighbor? Amy, who, who counts as, who's got the status of being neighbor so I know who I have to love? Jesus comes back at the end of the story and says, which of these three do you think became a neighbor to the one who was on the side of the road? Do you see what's happening here? Jesus says, for the people of God, the question is not who is my neighbor? Who counts as neighbor? Who can I identify as neighbor so that I know I have to love them as I love myself? Who is my, that's not the question. Jesus says, as the people of God, we don't ask the question, who is my neighbor? Instead, we go, Jesus says, and you go and you become a neighbor. You go and you make yourself a neighbor to the one who is in need. That's what it looks like to do justice. Do unobligated kindness. And walk in wise humility before God and others. And Micah says, that's our end of the relationship. That's our obligation in this life-giving relationship that God has established. Well, I'll leave you with this. There was one other show that I just absolutely loved coming up as a kid. Not a 90s show, although it was on in the 90s. Uh, but uh, absolutely loved it growing up. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Some of you remember Mr. Rogers. Pastor Brett will tell you that anytime you mention the word neighbor in a sermon, it is required that you mention Mr. Rogers. That's, that's part of it. Uh, but yeah, do you remember the song? It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for, come on up. We'll do, no, I'm just kidding. Right, and then, but, but especially the last line, like, won't you be my neighbor? Won't you be my neighbor? Here's the thing though. As much as I love Mr. Rogers, and I love Mr. Rogers, for the people of God, that's not the right question. For the people of God, the question is not, won't you be my neighbor? For God's people, the question is, how can I become your neighbor? How can I make myself a neighbor to the one who is in need? That's what it looks like to do justice, unobligated kindness, walk in a wise humility before God and others. And Micah says, that's our end of the relationship. That's our obligation in this life-giving relationship that God has established with us. Well, let me pray for us, and then I think we're going to close out with one more worship song together, if I've got that right, so feel free to come on up. But let me pray for us. In fact, would you go ahead and stand together in preparation for singing that song, and let's pray together, and then we'll worship with that closing song together. Lord, thank you so much for the gift of Scripture. Thank you so much especially today, that you have established and you continue to keep us in a life-giving relationship where you do right by us, where the saving acts of God are present in our lives. And so now today, Lord, I pray 
Help each one of us to learn through your spirit how we can respond to the message of scripture that has come to us today from Micah and from the gospel of Luke. What does it look like in our lives today, this week, for us to be those who respond to your love and grace by doing justice, by doing unobligated kindness, by having a wise humility. Teach us where we can practice that, what that looks like for us this week. May we, through the work of your spirit in our lives, be people who respond faithfully to our end of this life-giving relationship that you have given us. And we thank you again so much that you have drawn us into that relationship. You hold us in it. And you ask us only to respond as your people who are deeply loved and who receive the saving acts of God in our lives. Teach us as we go what that means and receive our prayer and our worship today. And we ask this, of course, in the name of the one who showed us what this looks like. Jesus, the Messiah and our Lord and Savior. Amen.